Good morning. How are you? All right. I have a question for you. You can call it answers. It's okay. This part of the message is participatory. The rest you need to sit in dead silence and don't move. Um, what do you think of when you hear the word chosen? Like what comes to your mind when you hear the word chosen? The eagles. The eagles. <laughs> the eagles. We'll have a repentance session after church. At least you didn't say patriots. Um, chosen for destruction. Okay, so anyway, um, what I think of when I hear the word chosen, I think of gym class. Most of us, probably all of us, unless we were homeschooled, and maybe even then you didn't get picked, had the experience of standing in a group of kids waiting for someone to choose us to be on their dodgeball team, their basketball team, or their football team. How many of us have had that experience? Waiting in a group of children, waiting to get picked. All right. So by a show of hands, how many of you were usually chosen first or second? Okay, to be honest, you're not bragging. Just raise, raise your hands up. How many of you were chosen first or second? Come on, just be honest. All right, thank you. All right, yep. You know why I was chosen first or second? Enor enormous. Yes, I'll take that kid for my basketball team. Thanks so much. <sighs> okay, how many of you were chosen in the middle? You weren't chosen last, but you were chosen in the middle. You're like, okay, you know, you're kind of like an average athlete. Got it? Okay. All right, this is going to take an incredible amount of moral courage. <laughs> and I do not mean to bring up any painful experiences or remind you of your total lack of athletic ability. But how many of you were chosen like dead last 100% of the time? Look around, all you last people. You are in good company. The Lord Jesus chose the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Like, of course most of us were chosen last. <sighs> Wasn't it the wise and compassionate gym teacher who wouldn't let someone get chosen last and assign like the last four or five kids to the team? Like, by, like he's like, okay, getting down to the end here. Okay, so you don't have to have the worst moment of your entire high school career. Why don't you, you go over there, and you and you go over there, and then you don't have to really wonder if you were going to be last because you knew you, you were going to be last. The one thing we assume when we hear the word chosen when it comes to people is that some people are chosen and some people are not. When the Bible uses the word chosen, or maybe you've heard this word predestined, which means marked out beforehand, in reference to people, I think some of us have questions. I have questions that go something like this. Does that mean, when the Bible tells us that we're chosen, does that mean that God chooses some people for his team and he doesn't choose others? Oh, man, that's weighty. And that question has been being asked for the last 400 years. In the 1600s, in Holland, this whole idea of has God chosen some people for his team for salvation and not chosen others who will be condemned and damned. Some Christians who are identified as Calvinists, based on the theology of a guy named John Kelvin, believe that God does, in fact, choose some people for salvation and others for damnation. Others who are identified as Arminians, based on the theology of Jacob Arminius, believe that God has not predetermined who will accept salvation, 
and that human beings have free will to either accept or reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The choice is yours, so to speak. This debate has raged in the church for centuries, and what's fascinating is that both groups have verses that they claim point to their theological viewpoint. I read way too much this week about Calvinism and Arminianism. I was a Calvinist one minute and I was an Arminian the next minute. Last night before bed, I was on a website and one of my favorite pastors wrote an article about Calvinism. I'm like, that's a really good point. And then I read some commentaries written by Arminians and I'm like, that's a really good point. So I am here to be totally unhelpful to you this morning. Here's what's interesting to me. People who land on different sides of this issue deeply love the Lord Jesus Christ. And they deeply love the scriptures. Some of you may be wondering, why are you talking about this? I am new. This sounds like some kind of family debate. You know what? It is a family debate. Do you know that the whole world doesn't care except Christians about this issue? Here's why we're talking about it. Because last week we started a new series in the book of Ephesians. And the Apostle Paul opens up his letter by reminding us of the numerous blessings we have because we are in Christ. Because we are connected to Christ. Paul tells us that one of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ is that we are chosen. Listen to what he says in chapter 1 verses 3 through 6. Here's the language we're talking about today. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us. He marked us out beforehand to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the, love, in the one he loves. Now let me be honest. When I just do a first reading of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 6, I'm like, Calvinism, no doubt, take it to the bank. God chose us. It's over. Why are we even having this discussion? We'll have this discussion. Because I think that there's some things in Ephesians 1 we assume if we're Calvinists, and there's some things that we assume if we're Arminian. And so many of you are like, I'm a nothing. Is it okay to be a nothing? Of course. You are free to be a nothing this morning. And that's a good thing, by the way. That's not like an assault on who you are as a person. You just don't even think about these things. So I'm going to talk about Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, and what I actually think it means. But first, I want to just kind of help you to see that there are a lot of things when it comes to salvation that all Christians agree on, no matter what side of the fence they're on, Okay. No matter if they believe staunchly in predestination or staunchly in free will, here are three things that all Christians agree on. Number one, all Christians agree that salvation is completely God's work. Salvation is completely God's work. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. What did Jesus just say? You're not becoming a Christian. You're not becoming a follower of Christ unless the Father draws you. That word draw in the Greek is helkuo, and it means to drag. Clearly, being drawn is a one-sided affair. 
God does the drawing to salvation. We who are drawn have a passive role in the process. Additionally, it's not only that God initiates desire for Jesus Christ, but once a person comes to Christ, God does all the work of salvation. You have no part in the process. You have not saved yourself in any way, shape, or form. There's no credit that you can say, I did it. There is no merit in you that you would be in Christ. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So tell me the last time you were dead and made yourself alive again. You can't. The picture of salvation is you're dead and only God can make you alive, meaning you did nothing. You did nothing to make yourself alive again. When you die, you can't make yourself live again. You understand that, right? Like salvation is completely God's work. And everyone agrees on that. That's clear in the scriptures. Number two, God knows who's going to respond to him. This is going to stretch you a little bit. And this is not necessarily a Calvinistic idea. God knows in advance who will respond to the gospel. We call this God's foreknowledge. He sees into the future every man, woman, and child, and he knows whether or not they will respond in faith to the gospel message. How do I know this? Well, when the Apostle Paul was trying to spread the good news about Jesus in the city of Corinth, he was facing a lot of opposition. And in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 10, when Paul was in Corinth, struggling to get the gospel out, being persecuted, Jesus showed up one night while he was on his bed. One night, it says, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep speaking. Do not be silent, Paul. Keep speaking the gospel. And Jesus is saying, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you. I have put you in the city of Corinth to proclaim the gospel. And then, listen to what Jesus says. Because I have many people in this city. How does Jesus know that? Because he knows the future. Because he sees into the human heart. He knows who will respond before the gospel goes out. God's foreknowledge is undeniable. But that foreknowledge doesn't mean we shouldn't share the gospel. In fact, we are supposed to do the opposite. Because Jesus knows who his people are, Paul was encouraged to preach boldly and broadly. Stay in Corinth, keep speaking, don't be silent. So whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminianist, it doesn't matter because the gospel needs to get out and we need to speak. And that brings me to the third point that everyone agrees on. Salvation only comes by responding to the gospel with belief. The absolutely only way to become a follower of Jesus and be saved and be re reborn we call this in the scriptures the new birth. Maybe you've heard the phrase, born-again Christian. 
This idea that we need to experience a spiritual new birth. The only way to become part of God's family is to believe the good news that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from death to give you new life. And this belief, this faith, isn't simply just saying, oh, I agree with that. All right, now let me go do my own thing. Real faith, real belief is not agreement. Rather, it's a recentering, a reorienting of your entire life around following Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 14, kind of make it really clear. Like This passage kind of tells us like we're chosen, but we also have to respond. So this kind of muddies the waters a little bit, and yet we see the tension here. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do you share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? How does God call through the gospel? How do you become a Christian? Through responding with belief to the gospel. And what I want you to see, here's why I'm telling you three things we agree on. Because the reality is, is that as followers of Jesus, we agree on a lot more than we disagree on. I also think, this is controversial, I also think the questions that Calvinism and Arminianism are seeking to answer are good questions, but I don't think the Bible was written to answer them. I don't think Paul sat down under the influence of the Holy Spirit to say, now I'm going to give a really crystal clear theology of Calvinism. I think sometimes we ask the text questions that it's not seeking to answer. Do you know that there are piles of verses for both sides. Do you know next week I could preach to you and convince you the scriptures teach you to be a Calvinist? And the very next week I could come with an incredibly compelling argument that you should be Arminian. But here's the truth. The Bible doesn't seem to resolve the paradox that God has sovereign purposes and is in control of all things and that human beings have free will. It holds those things in tension, that God sovereignly is ruling and reigning over everything in the universe, and human beings have free will. Both of those things are true. We are not robots. Just because God knows something's going to happen doesn't mean he made you do it. I know that stretches our mind, but if you think about that intellectually and you, you really bring that out to its logical conclusion, it is not required to say that free will does not exist if God has foreknowledge. Additionally, I think when we come to issues of disagreement within the church that I would say are secondary. This is a secondary issue. I believe that we need to be patient and charitable and kind to one another and find common ground. At Spring Valley, we aren't building our ministry on John Kelvin or Jacob Arminius. We are building our ministry on Christ. That's the name we want you to know here. That's the name we want you to love here. And we are humbly submitted to his word. 
when I study the scripture, these things challenge me. But you know what the scripture's not challenging me to do? Pick a side. God is not asking you to go to the scriptures and pick a side. He's asking you to go to the scriptures and pick a savior. Jesus. Meaning, here's what this means. And I know that very few of you care about this, but for those who do, this may be your last day here. We aren't going to staunchly defend the theological framework of Calvinism or Arminianism. We are going to study the scriptures in context and try to discover what the biblical authors were saying in context and revolve our lives accordingly around that. And when things are unclear and we're not sure, it is okay not to know. But I want you to know that we're always going to passionately preach the gospel. And we are going to invite every man, woman, and child to surrender their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I really want to dive in here to Ephesians for a few moments. I only have two points this morning. This is kind of the second half of the message. And I want to tell you two reasons why we have been chosen. So you might be wondering, Joe, are you a Calvinist? Are you an Arminianist? And I'm like, yeah, I am. Thank you for asking. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1. First thing I want you to know about the fact that you're chosen is that we are chosen to be holy. When you think about being chosen, you need to think about the fact that you're chosen for a purpose, and that is to be holy. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, For he chose us in him. That's interesting. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Who's the in him? That's Christ. So I want you to notice something here to help you understand the scriptures. Notice that Paul is not talking to an individual person. He doesn't say God chose you in him. It says that he chose us in him. He chose the whole church in Christ before the creation of the world. The way Paul is using the word chosen in context is actually not about a person but about all of us collectively in Christ. The idea is, is that we are chosen corporately. I don't think Paul's point here is that some are chosen and some aren't. I think what Paul is saying is, is that God's plan before the creation of the world was to create a people for himself through Christ. The reason God's people are called chosen is because we are connected to the chosen one, Jesus Christ. Like if you follow the scriptures starting with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, then you look at the nation of Israel, then you look at Isaiah 42 where it talks about that one day God would send his chosen one, his servant, which is talking about Jesus Christ. And then you come to Luke chapter 9 verse 35 where Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and God the Father speaks when Jesus is there. Listen to what the Father says about Jesus. Then a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. What isn't up for debate is that as the chosen people of God, we are chosen in Christ as a group. And because we're chosen in Christ, because we're Christ's people, we have been called to holiness and blamelessness in God's sight. To be holy means to be set apart. Blameless means to be without blemish. 
Do you know that you can never behave our, your way into being a Christian? You can never behave your way into holiness. You and I, if we're in Christ, if we've responded to the gospel and believed that Jesus died for us and rose to give us new life, if we believe that, we are holy before we behave. Holiness is our identity based on Jesus' work, not our own. However, because our identity as God's people is that we are holy and blameless, we must live our lives reflecting who we are. How we live deeply matters to the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14-16, through 16, the Apostle Peter says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. You don't have to raise your hand because we all have evil desires. I do and you do. But what are we supposed to do instead of giving in to our evil desires? But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Why? For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Why are we a people committed to holy living? Because we serve a holy God. I want to ask you this morning if you're serious about holiness. Are you serious about holiness or are you just playing games? Are you holy in the way you treat other people? Are you holy in your entertainment choices? Are you holy in the words that come out of your mouth? Or are you greedy and gossipy and prideful and competitive and always trying to one-up someone else? Or are you envious and jealous of what everyone else has? You're like, those are the sins you're going to rag on? Yeah, because we never talk about those. Some of us think if we're not gay, we're holy. How dare us? How dare us? Holiness bleeds into every fiber of who we are. Every thought, every word, every desire, every morsel of food we put in our mouth. Holiness. My fear is that we do this whole Christian game. Often as Christians, we ask the wrong questions. Some of you ask this question regularly. I know when I was a younger man, I often asked this question, and I repent for it, and I regret I lived my life this way. So young people, hear me. Hear me. Many of us ask, and this is young and old, how close can I get to the line without crossing it? How far can I go before I sin? But what a wicked question, born from wicked motives. Our question should be, how can I be more like Christ? How close can I get to Christ? How can I conform my life to who Christ is and live that out? Instead of flirting with sin and rationalizing our sin, we are called to be people who are holy and blameless in all we do. Why? Because we were chosen in Christ before the world began to be holy and blameless in his sight. That is your destiny. That is God's will for your life. Take that to the bank and say, I know for certain what God has for me. A holy and blameless life before him. But here's what we know. Every person in this room struggles. All of us, we struggle. We struggle. 
We struggle to be holy. And we struggle to be blameless. And we need to realize something. That the power and motivation for holiness doesn't stem from trying to be better. It does not stem from guilt and shame. It does not stem from you having an incredible amount of self-discipline. The power and motivation to live holy and blameless lives is to come from the fact that you are securely planted in the love of God. Your motivation for holiness and blameless living is grace and love, not shame and guilt and disapproval. How do I know that? Because the very next verse in Ephesians tells us that we were not just chosen for holiness and blamelessness, we are chosen for sonship. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, in love he predestined us. He marked us out beforehand to be adopted as his sons. Again, that's not one of us, that's all of us. Through Jesus Christ. Again, I think Jesus Christ being the chosen one. That God planned from eternity past that he would have a people through his son. In accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So in Roman culture... Adoption was different than how we think about adoption today. When a family didn't have a son to inherit the family fortune, they chose to adopt a son. This could either be a child or it could be an adult, a full-grown male, but always a male. A family always adopted a son to inherit the estate. And as soon as the son was adopted into the family, they would immediately have the full rights and privileges of biological children. Through Jesus Christ, both men and women are adopted into God's family as sons with legal standing, with this beautiful picture of standing before God with full legal rights to all that belongs to our Father. We have been adopted for sonship. We have been chosen for sonship. Last week I've said all the stuff I've already said, but here's what I didn't say. What does adoption mean practically for our lives? I think there's three things. Number one, I think it means we have access. No matter who the President of the United States is, it's impossible to get access to him. I cannot call the White House tomorrow and request to have lunch with the President. If I tried to talk to the president on the street and ask him to clean up his language, and I ran up to him, and I said, Mr. President, and I was running, and I'm like, hey, just one minute, I would get shot or tased and certainly arrested. Why? Because I don't have access. I don't have access to him. But if I was his son, I would be able to speak with him and be with him anytime I wanted. Do you know that this picture of adoption is an invitation for a deep, rich, personal relationship with God? We have been blessed with access to God at any moment for any reason. So to speak, his door is always open to you. You think he just wants your holy and blameless life. Do good and I'll like you. Nope. You're my son, you're my daughter. 
Let's hang out together. Let me shower my love and my grace upon you. This morning we were in the place where our band prays before worship, and Karen, who was singing this morning, was holding her youngest son, Jonah. And when we were praying, Karen was kneeling down with Jonah, and he's, he's, he's a toddler, he's in baby stage, and Jonah was just hanging on to Karen, and Karen was hanging on to Jonah, and she was just rubbing his back, and he was just hanging out so safe, so steady in his mother's arms. That's the kind of access you have to God. That's the kind of love times infinity that is yours in Christ. Not only do we have access, we also have an inheritance. Wouldn't it be amazing if you found out that Bill Gates wrote you into his will? Please, yes, that sounds great. Or Jeff Bezos, owner of Amazon, and now I think the richest man in the universe. Please, Jeff, remember me. Warren Buffett, he'll probably die earlier than all of them. That's probably the one I'd choose. Wouldn't it be amazing if you were written into their will? Do you know that the main truth of adoption is that you have been written into God's will? Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. You've got to follow me. This passage, there's a lot of things going on, but just let me read it to you and let it, the truth wash over you. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, are children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Some of you are here and you're enslaved to fear because you're not living in the secure love of God. Because you're not relying on the Holy Spirit to lead you into beautiful sonship and to the enjoyment of that sonship. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought, you ab brought about your adoption <laughs> to sonship. And by the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. So how do you know that you're a Christian? That in you, there's a voice calling within saying, God, I need you. Dad, I'm here. There's something about the Spirit working in us that's reminding us of God being our dad. And this is what Paul says. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Why? Because we've been adopted to sonship. Now, here's Paul's conclusion. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. What's Jesus going to inherit? Everything. You know, Jesus is our brother, and whatever Jesus is getting for all eternity, we also get with him. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed, oh, we don't like this part, but it's so good. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Because of our adoption, we are going to inherit all that belongs to God. This allows us to be profoundly hopeful in the present, regardless of what we're going through, because our future is exceedingly bright. And here's the third thing that our adoption means. It means security. I know some of us kind of freak out, are like, wait, Joe, security? Does that mean that no one can lose their salvation? 
Why are we asking ridiculous questions like that? Why are we spending so much time wondering who's in and who's out? Worry about yourself. Enjoy adoption for yourself. You're not the church police. You're not the salvation police. The Lord knows those who are his. Don't we want to encourage people to embrace and enjoy the love of God? I know that we're afraid that people, if they find out how good it is to be a child of God, that they will run and sin and do whatever they feel like. Listen, that's not how children think. We are securely planted in the love of God. God decided in eternity past that he was going to adopt a people like Spring Valley Community Church through his son in the same way we were chosen in Christ before the creation of the world. Your adoption is not flimsy. We have parents in this church who have adopted children. Parents in this church who are thinking about adopting children. You may have at one point thought raising this child is difficult, but you don't want to give them back. Because when you adopted them, you welcomed into the family, and they were safely, permanently stationed at your house. You signed the papers. That child is yours and belongs to none other. Your adoption is not flimsy. God decided he would adopt a people for himself eons ago. Once you are adopted through faith in Christ, God is not going to unadopt you. He puts up with you. Does that mean that you can't lose your salvation? What I really think it is is people never actually realized the goodness and the beauty of Christ and they're just playing religious games and then they leave. They use religion like a like a rabbit's foot. Oh, if I go to church and I say the right words, everything's good. That's not Christianity at all. Christianity is come to Jesus, enjoy the family. He is your treasure. He is your savior. He is the one your soul longs for. You aren't one bad decision away from being thrown out of the family. In the same way my children aren't one bad decision away from becoming orphans. I want you to know that one of the blessings of being in Christ is that we don't spend time wondering if we're in. Paul tells us that God is a God who loves to give grace freely. And isn't that good news? Because you need an ocean of grace to be poured over your life. I am glad, personally, that God is choosing to give his grace to me, to us as his people, freely. Because we desperately need it. And it brings him pleasure to do so. Think about this. It brings God pleasure to put up with you. You have a hard time putting up with you. God loves you more than you do. It's his pleasure to freely give you grace. So have you received God's grace into your life? 
I'm talking to both Christians and non-Christians. For Christians, I want to encourage you to internalize your identity in Christ. You have been called to be holy and you've been called to adoption in Christ. This is who you are. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget who we are as the church. Even when we drive one another nuts, we are chosen by God before the world began in Christ. For those of you who are here this morning and you're not following Christ, you need to know that God desires for you to come into his family through faith in his son. That's the only requirement, faith, a reorienting of your life in Christ. Are you sitting here this morning realizing my life doesn't even reflect the word holy? I'm doing everything on my own. I'm not in Christ. I want you to know today that it's God's will that none should perish. Without Christ, your destiny is perishing. With Christ, your destiny is inheriting all that belongs to Christ. Your destiny is holy and blameless living. Your destiny is to be wrapped securely in the arms of God. That can happen today through faith. Before we leave this morning, if we could have every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to ask today in this room, who's not in Christ? Who's not in Christ? If you want to give your life to Christ today, if you want to be wrapped up, all of who you are, wrapped up in Jesus, who died for you, who rose for you, who is ready to forgive you, give you new life, give you a hope and a future, and be with you in the present. I want to ask you this morning, if you know you need Christ, would you lift your hand? Thank you in the back. Is there anyone else? Would you pray with me this morning? Lord God, you see the the ones who are here this morning who are not in Christ. And Lord, I thank you that you have a Father's heart for them. Lord, that you have never given up on them and that you love them. I pray today they would simply call out to you and say, Jesus, come in. I turn from my sin. I give you my heart. Be the Lord and the leader of my life. I want to follow you. I want to be in Christ. My life is yours. And Lord, for those of us who are struggling to believe the reality of our adoption, even though it's true, we aren't living as if it's true. Lord God, I pray that you would just overwhelm us with your love. I pray that you would tear our walls down and all the barriers we've built up, why we're unlovable and not worthy, and how God's love is for everyone else except for me. God, the Holy Spirit, would you just destroy those walls and silence those lies? 
And I pray that we would be a people who live out our gospel identity, that we are chosen for holiness and we are adopted as your children, firmly planted in your love. Help us to live by faith in that way. God, we need you. Remind us of these truths throughout the week, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray.